Hi, my name is Debbie. The Old Testament reading is found in Deuteronomy 12, 3 through 5. Rip down their altars and shatter their sacred stones. Burn their sacred poles with fire. Hack their God's idols into pieces. Wipe out their names from that place. Don't act like they did toward the Lord your God. Instead, you must search for the location the Lord your God will select from all your tribes to put his name there as his residence, and you must go there. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 2. From Paul, called by God's will to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, and from Sosthenes, our brother, to God's church that is in Corinth, to those who have been made holy to God in Christ Jesus, who are called to be God's people, together with all those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in every place. He's their Lord and ours. The word of the Lord. If you're able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew 6, 9. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray. Thank you so much for reading for us this morning, Debbie. Father, we come before you this morning, your kids, your daughters, and your sons, those that call you Father. Uh, This, the third Sunday of Easter, we ask that you would recreate Emmaus among us. Sneak up on us, Jesus. Speak to us. Open our minds to understand the scriptures, to see how all of the scriptures, all of the law and the prophets speak to you, the Messiah and our Lord. Not only would you open our minds, but we pray that you would cause our hearts to burn inside of us. If there are things that need to be burned off, would you burn them off? But more than anything, would you ignite our hearts with holy love? That we might fall more deeply and truly in love with you. And that out of the sense that we are loved and we are in love with you, would that spill out to one another and to our world? In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It is great to see all of you who are here this morning and all of you who are joining us online. We love you. We're thinking about you. We miss you and look forward to the day that you're able to rejoin us. Names matter. They're important. They're significant to us. If you think about that moment, either maybe when uh, you were born, not that you remember all of that, but uh, or when you had kids, there's a lot of intentionality that goes behind names. When we're born, we're given at least two names, a first name and a last name. Some of us get a middle name like Randolph that doesn't really make sense with Jason and Jackson, but it's there. <laughs> Some of us get three names. Some of us, if you're from the South especially, you may have four or five or six or seven, you know, that sort of get added in there. And our parents, we hope, thought really intentionally about what our name would be. Or maybe if you are a parent, you can remember back to those days that you were grabbing those parenting, like naming books, like all the different possibilities of names for kids in the world and reading through and going, I really hope it means that in Hebrew or Greek. I'm assuming that this book is telling me the truth about those things. But we think very intentionally about our names. We're given that unique first name that sort of identifies this is who I am. 
This is my name. And then we're given a common last name that sort of says, this is my people. This is the family that I belong to. Our names in some way get connected then to our identity as well as to our history, our family, our ancestors, our story, how we ended up in this place. Names become the very thing that we are known by. And because our names get so connected to our identity and they are how we are known, they carry a lot of weight or significance with them. On a personal level, they carry that sense that when someone knows our name, something ignites inside of us. That when you walk into a place like this and someone takes the time to ask you, what's your name? And you're given a space to be able to share that. And then if you come back the next week or the week after that and you see that person again and they remember your name... Like something happens inside of us because we feel even just a little bit known, a little bit identified. But beyond that, our names not only carry that significance for us, they carry with it our reputation. Our names are how we're known or how we're identified, but they also carry with it something more that when someone says our name to someone else, they just don't think about our face. They think about all the interactions they've had with us. They think about what it is that we might do in the world or how we interact with people or what our reputation happens to be. They become synonymous with our character or our nature. We see this actually all around our world if we think about our criminal justice system. When a defendant is coming into court, what's their great hope? To clear his or her name. In our corporate world and in corporate law, we trademark names. Because the name represents the company. Nike's in a big conversation about this over some unusual shoes that came out a couple of weeks ago. And there's conversations about protecting the brand, protecting the name, that if the name gets used in a different way, we don't want that, so we trademark things and we protect them. Even in popular culture, it comes up, Bon Jovi taught us that you can give love a bad name. <laughs> All right? Pumbaa and Timon have told us that there can be shame in your name and you can get downhearted. I'm not going to go any further with the song from there. I'm going to be like the first Lion King, not the second Lion and, and, and stop when I should. If you are Potterheads, you know that there's significance to names. He who shall not be named. You know who, that saying Voldemort's name in the Harry Potter books sort of recalls all of his deeds and casts suspicion on the person that would dare to use his name. And this isn't new. People have known this throughout generations. In fact, our ancestors in faith, they captured this in some really poignant ways, especially in the Proverbs, where the Proverbs in chapter 22, verse 1 says, a good name is more desirable than riches. A good name is more valuable than wealth. 
We're continuing our series this morning through the Lord's Prayer, a series that we're calling Praying with Jesus, where we're taking seven weeks and walking through the seven phrases of that prayer, where Jesus is having this moment with his disciples, where they've been watching him and observing him and seeing how he prays and realizing, I don't know how to do that. And so they humbly and honestly come to him and said, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? We don't know how to do this. We need help. And so we come honestly the same way, saying prayer's hard. Prayer's difficult. Prayer's confusing. Prayer doesn't always go well. Sometimes we fall asleep during it. All right, we say, Jesus, would you help us? Would you teach us to pray? And Jesus answered his disciples and he answers us. This then is how you should pray. And he begins to put words on our lips, which is especially helpful for us in times where we feel like words are elusive when we're just not sure what to say anymore. And he says, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That first phrase, our Father, is an address. It tells us exactly who it is that we're praying to. It says, this is the person that we're praying to, and we pray to him as father. Not only is that identifying who we pray to, but how we're supposed to relate. That when we come in prayer, we're coming surrendering to the love of God, who reveals himself to us as parents, as father. And we're knowing immediately in that moment, oh, this is how we're to relate in the same way that a child relates to a parent. We are to relate to God in this way. But we're not only reminded who we're praying to, we're reminded who we're praying with. As Pastor Glenn said last week, it is our Father, not simply my Father. That when we come and pray, we're praying with Jesus. Jesus is praying this prayer and we're joining our words to his words. And we're being caught up in the relationship between father and son and praying with Jesus and we're praying with one another. Isn't it always comforting to know that we're not the only ones praying? (laughs) That our words are heard by Jesus himself and our words are echoed by our brothers and sisters across time and around the world that we're not alone in this, but we're praying with Jesus and with one another to our Father. And then we get to the second phrase. And the second phrase is when we make an ask. It's the first time we're asking for anything in this prayer. It's our first petition of saying, God, this is what we want to ask you for today. And the ask concerns God's name. The very first petition that Jesus puts on our mouth is a concern for the very name of God. It's not a new concern for the church. It's not a new concern for the people of God. If we think all the way back to the Ten Commandments, we find even there that a concern is placed on our hearts for the very name of God. Exodus chapter 20 verse 7 says, do not use the Lord your God's name as if it were of no significance. That's how this translation interprets it. The more traditional version is, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Don't treat it as if it doesn't have significance. Names matter. Names are important. And particularly, the name of our God. 
that this name matters. It has weight or significance to it. And specifically, what Jesus is concerned about and what the Ten Commandments are concerned about, it's God's personal name. The name that gets revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 as he takes off his shoes in front of the burning bush and hears God speaking to him and says, my name is Yahweh. I am who I am. And throughout our history as the church, we've extended that concern to the name of Jesus and to the name of the Holy Spirit. Why these particular names? Because it's by these names that God's known. It's by these names that God reveals himself to us. And it's by these names that carry, these names carry God's reputation. They become synonymous with his character and with his nature. See, for us as the people of God, God is not an abstract, anonymous, divine force or being. Not just God. And whatever we want to describe God as and whatever we sort of slap that name on, all of those things are the same. No, for us, we believe in one God and his name is Yahweh. He's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's the God of Sarah and Rachel and Rebecca. He's the God of David and Bathsheba, the God of Hagar, the God of Moses, the God of the Exodus, the Father of Jesus, the God who speaks through the prophets, the God who is personal, who's relatable, who reveals himself to us, who wants to be known and, want, and the one who knows us, the God who speaks and the God who listens, the God God who acts, the God who responds, the God who is with us. And so with us, his name is synonymous with his character, carries his reputation with it. This is why the scriptures so often don't just simply mention his name, but attach descriptors to it. And probably the most common descriptor that the scriptures attach to his name is the word Holy. He is the Lord our God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Because God is holy, his name is holy. The psalmist knew this well in the songs that they sing, similar to the songs that we sang this morning. Thank you, Pastor Micah, for being here with us and leading us this morning. We have names that we're singing about. The name of God and saying it's holy. The psalmist in verse chapter 30, verse 4 says it this way. He says, you who are faithful to the Lord, sing praises to him. Give thanks to his holy name. Later on in 33, it says this. You are, so our hearts rejoice in God because we trust in his holy name. So we proclaim his name and we distinctively proclaim that it is holy. And we, in doing so, we recognize that the God who makes himself known to us is not like us. Yes, he's personal. Yes, he's relatable. Yes, we're able to call God Father, but he is not like us. And when we say that God is holy, we recognize that there is an otherness to God, that he is distinct that he is different, that God in himself is breath-giving beauty and he is breath-taking majesty, that he is good and he is great, that he is with us 
and also other than us. That he is all-powerful and also all-present. He's not absent in any way. And so Jesus comes to us and teaches us to pray. And he tells us the second thing that should be on our lips is a concern for this name. The name of our God. And to pray, hallowed be your name. Now I'm guessing hallowed's not a word that we use in everyday sort of discourse. Right? It's not like we're sitting around in the office or maybe around the family table. Unless we're praying this prayer, we're probably not talking about things that have been hallowed, right? It's not a common word on our lips, but the very idea of it is to make something holy, to allow something to be consecrated, to be set apart. In other words, the idea here is for God's name to keep its otherness, to keep its holiness, in the original language, the prayer comes to us in what we call passive voice. That the name is the thing that's being acted upon. Your name be hallowed. Which leaves us with the question, well then who does the hallowing? If the name is receiving the hallowing, then who is it that is doing the hallowing? Who is it that is doing the work of consecrating or setting apart this name? And for most of us, we see him, well, we do. It's us. Because this is in our bones. From our very beginning of our lives, when we're given our name, there is something about that name that we feel called to live into or to live up to. Maybe in your household, you specifically talked about, well, this is what it means to be a Beck. This is what it means to be a Heckman. This is what it means to be a Lake. This is what it means to be a Todd. That in this house, these are the things that we do, and these are the things that we don't do. Maybe your parents had that conversation with you and said, sorry, we do not do this in that house. You are a Smith, and we don't do that around here. Or maybe you're thinking, oh, yes, I had that conversation with my own children this morning at breakfast. <laughs> right? There's this sense that we're given a name and there's a pressure to kind of live up into it. In my own house, there's lots of conversations about what it means to be a Jackson. There were certain things that we did do or did not do because you're a Jackson. Why don't we do that? You're a Jackson. That was the only explanation that we were given. And I was hoping, you know, that there would be some substance to those kinds of things. Like, surely that if this is what it means to be a Jackson, then these things must deeply, deeply matter. And yet the things that were most commonly associated with it were, you're a Jackson, we don't do music. You don't do bands and you don't do choir and you don't play basketball. You go to study hall and you wrestle. That's what you do. Well, why? Because you're a Jackson. And I'm still trying to figure out why that mattered so much. Like why basketball was so bad and wrestling was not. Still, the counselor's helping me and someday I'll work through this. So we have this pressure as kids to live up to a name. But then something happens in us. Then at a certain point in life that we start to think, no, I need to make a name for myself. This is no longer about being a Jackson, but this is what it means to be Jason. I've got to make a name for myself. I think a lot of times that happens for us sometime in high school when we start thinking about our college applications. 
I've got to set myself apart. So I've got to find a way in. I've got to build my application. Later, later on, it's, I've got to build my resume, or I've got to build my platform, or I've got to build my portfolio, or I've got to build my business, or I've got to build my brand, or I've got to build my family. I've got to build my legacy. I've got to network and get my name out there so that there's name recognition for me. I've got to make a name for myself. Somehow in this world, I've got to build this up. I've got this thing that I need to get out there. And if I'm not doing the work, if I'm not engaging the hustle, if I'm not rolling my sleeves up and making a name for myself, then nobody else is going to do that. And there's a part of that that is about us going to work and doing the work that the Lord has set before us and working hard and doing things with excellence. But if we're not careful, these things become little babbles for us. Little ways in which we try to create our own significance, build our way up to the top, to reach to the heavens and make a name for ourselves. And then suddenly something happens to a lot of us is either we come to faith in Christ or we get to a place in the maturity in Christ and we go, wait, wait a minute, that's not what it's about. Life is not about just making a name for myself. Life is about making a name for God. So now I've got I've to build God's brand. I've got to build God's kingdom. I've got to get God's name out there. I've got to do this. We take all of that same sort of energy that we put into building our own name, our own brand, and say, okay, no, we're going to do it for God. I'm going to build my ministry. Wait, no, no, it's not my ministry. It's God's ministry. And I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get it out there. And all that pressure becomes moved in that direction. But in the original language here, in the, in the Greek, when you have passive voice and no actor is named, when something is happening to it, but we don't know who the person is that's doing the work, it's called in the original language a divine passive. That the subject here, the person that's doing the work, is not us. It's God. That what we're asking is we're asking God to hallow his own name. Jesus teaches us to ask God to take care of his name. He asks us, teaches us to say, God, you hallow your name. See, hallowing is always God's work. Only the holy God can make holy things. Only the holy God can make things holy. This is not something that we can do. We can't make God's name holy. God's name is holy, and God's the one that continues to uphold the holiness of his name. In the Lord's Prayer, we're not coming to before God and saying, okay, God, I vow to make your name holy. We're not coming before him and promising, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do more. I'm going to do everything I can to give you a good name. I think he's got his name under control. Like, he's got, his name's good. There's not a lot we can do for it, right? We're not asking or vowing to do it ourselves. We're asking God to do it. We're asking God to hallow his name where it is not presently being hallowed. We're asking God to extend the recognition of the holiness of his name where it is not currently recognized. So what does that actually look like? What are we actually praying for when we say, God, would you hallow your name? What happens when God does that? 
Like, okay, God, how in your name? What, what does that look like? How does that sort of manifest itself? How does that show up? I actually think we get some glimpses of this in the Old Testament. There's a few places where God does some really interesting things with his name that I think become a key for us to understand what's happening. And the first one is in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Here Israel is sitting on the other side of the Jordan River and they're preparing to go into the land that God has given them. And we have all of these instructions about what they're to do when they arrive in the land. And one of them in Deuteronomy chapter 12, it says this. It says, rip down their altars and shatter their sacred stones and burn their sacred poles with fire and hack their God's idols into pieces and wipe out their names from that place. I think this is the foundational scripture for Christian heavy metal music. <laughs> I mean, we've got rip, burn, hack, wipe out. I mean, I think if we just get some real good electric guitar riffs behind this, that this is the intensity, but notice what it says at the end, wipe out their names. See, there's these places that the names of other gods have become associated with. And the people of God are called to come in and wipe that out. And then it goes on and says, don't act like they did toward the Lord your God. Instead, do this. You must search for the location that the Lord your God will select from all your tribes to put his name there as his residence, as his dwelling place, and you must go there. This phrase, the place where the Lord will set his name or place his name is a little bit of an odd phrase. Like, what does that actually mean? One of my professors in seminary, Sandra Richter, she in her dissertation showed that this is actually an idiom that's found in the ancient Near East. The idea here is to place up a monument that has one's name inscribed in it. So here's what would happen in the ancient world is that as kings were going about conquering, you know, as kings did in that time. They're going out conquering new lands. What they would do is they come in and they would find the inscriptions from other kings and other gods and they would blot those out. And then, or they would tear them down completely and then they would put up a new one with a nice, you know, sort of picture of that king and that king's god and they would write their name on it. And it was a way of saying, this land is now my land. It's a way of sort of claiming territory, of, saying, of taking up residence and saying, yeah, 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 you used to be under the authority of this king and you used to serve these gods, but now a new king is moving in. For us, our equivalent is what? It's raising a flag, right? When militaries go in and they conquer new places, what do they do? They take down a flag and they raise up a new one. It's a way of claiming ownership, of claiming territory, of evicting one ruler and a new ruler moving in. And so in Deuteronomy, we see the Canaanite kings and their gods are getting kicked out of the land and a new king is moving in. Yahweh himself, the one who is to be worshipped. See, this is what happens when God hallows his name is that he makes holy places. He makes places holy because holy places are his places. Holy places are the places where he shows up. They're the places his presence is. They are the places that he's claimed. Or we can maybe say it better, they're places that he's reclaimed. Because we know that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That everything is God's. 
And then there are places where he's going in and reclaiming those so that his presence can be encountered there. One of my favorite writers, Wendell Berry, says it this way. He says, in the world, there are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. There are places that were claimed by God and then in some way desecrated where his name was taken out of that. And so when we're praying this prayer, what we're asking is for God to take desecrated places and make them sacred again. That he would reclaim territory in the world. That he would in some way make every ground holy ground. That he would make a hotel holy space. That he would set his name here so his presence might be encountered. That he would make our dwelling places our homes and our apartments and our dorm rooms, that he would make those his dwelling place, that he would make our workplace his workplace, that he would take this space and make it his own, that he would make it holy. I think maybe one of the most beautiful pictures of this that we've seen as a church is Mary's home, this collection of apartments and buildings that were meth houses have now become safe houses, Places of death and destruction have become places of safety in life, places of restoration, places where instead of lives being torn apart, lives are being placed back together by God himself. See, what happens when we pray this way, God, make spaces holy spaces, hallow your name here, is that actually what begins to happen in us is that we cultivate a holy curiosity, so we start to pray this way, we start walking into spaces and going, God, how are you making this place holy? What are you doing here? What are you up to? What are you up to in my home? What are you up to in my neighborhood? What are you up to on this street? What are you up to in this house that I just got invited into? What are you up to here? God, how are you reclaiming this space? How are you making this space holy? And then what happens for us is that every place becomes a place that we can encounter God. Every place for the people of God can become Bethel. Surely God was in this place and I didn't even know it. I didn't see it. It's not that he was absent. I just couldn't see it. And then I start praying, God, where are you at? What are you doing? How are you hallowing your name in this space? And over time, we begin to give eyes to see. Like, oh, there you are. That's what you're doing. Here's how you are making this space holy again. When God hallows his name, he makes places holy. He makes holy places. He puts his name there. The other interesting place in the Old Testament they puts his name might surprise us. But there's one other space where we see that God puts his name somewhere, that he places his name, that he hallows his name, and it comes at the end of a really famous passage, a passage that you've heard numerous times here. It's Numbers chapter 6. As Aaron and the priests are stretching their hands out over the people of God and blessing them and praying to the Lord and say, Lord... May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace. And then very next verse is this. And in doing so, they will place my name on the Israelites. They will place my name on my people. 
See, here God doesn't place his name on a temple or on a tabernacle, but on us, on his people. So that wherever we go, his name actually goes with us. See, when God hallows his name, he not only makes holy places, he makes holy people. He makes people holy. He actually makes sinners saints. He does a profound work inside of us, a work that we can't do ourselves, that we can't sort of just say, well, I'm going to clean myself up, Lord. I'm going to get my act together. I'm going to stop doing this thing. I'm going to start doing these things. God, I'm going to make myself holy. Remember, Halloween is only God's work. It's not something that we can do ourselves. But God comes to all of us in our stories, in our brokenness, in the places that we find ourselves in, either because of what's happened to us or the things that we've done in those moments where we say, I'm too far gone, Lord. This place, this area of my life, this is too messed up. This is too dirty. This is too broken. This is too shameful. This can't be redeemed. This, you can't do anything with that God. And God says, watch me. Watch me. I'm the God who brings the dead back to life. I can handle that. I can hallow my name, even in the most horrendous parts of your story. I can hallow my name. I can heal that thing. I can bring life out of those dead places. I can bring life back to you. I can make you holy as I am holy. We pray this prayer not simply though as individuals. But he's making a holy people, a holy community. We even say it in our creed, we believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. See, true holiness doesn't just sort of work itself out in private. True holiness works itself out in public. It works itself out in and through the people of God. One of my heroes in the faith, John Wesley, said it this way. He said, solitary religion is not to be found there, referring to the gospel, the gospel is not a solitary religion. It's not a me and Jesus thing. It's not, a, I'm just going to go over here, just me and God, me and Jesus, me and the Spirit, and that's it. I don't, I don't really need these people because these people, quite frankly, God, they're disappointing. They're a bit messy. They're annoying at times. They kind of drive me crazy. I'm not sure I want to be associated with them. But you and me in the mountains on a fire, let's do that. There's no solitary religion to be found in the scriptures, but instead the gospel of Christ knows no religion but social and no holiness but social holiness. What does holiness look like? It comes out to play in our relationships as we become more loving and more gracious and more kind and more merciful and more forgiving toward one another. When we pray this way, hallowed be your name, we actually begin to cultivate the same holy curiosity about our life together. But what God's not only doing in my life, but what he's doing in our life together. We don't simply say, God, would you make me holy? Hallow your name in me. We don't stop there. In fact, I don't even think we start there. The place that we start, that Jesus tells us to start, is our, is together. God, would you make us 
the people called New Life Downtown. Would you make us holy? And then we start to sort of wonder about one another. <laughs> How is God showing up in that person? How is God coming to me through that person? How is God at work here? We start looking for his presence in each other, in our relationships. Our connections actually become the context in which God consecrates us. It's in this space and with these people that we start to say, okay, God, what are you up to here? How are you making us holy? And I think this is even when, maybe even especially when it gets hard, when it takes work, not when it's abusive, but when it's hard and when it takes work and when things start to get uncovered inside of us. See, oftentimes some of the hardness that comes up in relationships is because God's holiness is at work and trying to expose things inside of us. He starts exposing our, our selfishness. And I don't like that. So I don't like that person. Because when I'm with them, then this part of me gets exposed. So I'm going to withdraw here. Or oh, my greed is getting touched on here. Or my jealousy is getting touched on here. Or my, you know, sort of loose relationship with the truth is being touched on here. And I don't really like that too much. Or that thing inside of me, that is, it's getting confronted. It's, it's coming up again. And I don't really like that. That is uncomfortable. So you know what I need? I probably need a new church. No. What we need is a holy curiosity of, okay, God, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me? How are you trying to hallow your name with these people? How are you hallowing your name in me? How are you making holy? When we think that way, church doesn't become something that we do or some place that we attend. It doesn't become something that we observe or watch or consume. It doesn't become an optional add-on to like the, you know, super Christians, like, oh, well, those folks, I mean, they've added church onto all of that. I mean, that's a bit too far for me. <laughs> this has become an, op an optional add-on, but instead the people that are singing with us, people that are serving alongside of us, people that are in our meal group, the people that we find ourselves in relationship with, these are not incidental, inconsequential associations that just happened in our life in this season. But this becomes this holy place. And these people become these holy people. And we start to recognize that the church is the epicenter for the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. That, oh, how is God making me holy? He's putting me in community. And he's putting me in sacred places amongst sacred people. And he's doing his work there and in them and through them and in and through me. So we pray this way. We start to say, okay, God, would you make places holy and would you make people holy and we develop a holy curiosity that changes the way we see the world this is one of the many ways i think that, that prayer changes us sometimes we're so when we think about prayer we just want prayer to change things like make this difference make that person different make my work different my boss different my spouse different my kids different make all of those things different and what happens is, is that we get made different. <laughs> the prayer changes us as we're praying for everybody else. And somehow the Spirit shows up and begins to change us and he changes the way that we see. 
changes our perception and expectation. We start to see places not as God-forsaken places, but as places that God has reclaimed. And we start to wonder, God, where are you at and what are you up to? And we walk around with a holy curiosity. We no longer see people as problems that I need to avoid and get around and, you know, sort of protect myself from. We say, okay, where are you at? Where are you coming? How are you making me holy in the middle of this relationship? It changes the way that we see. It's the same kind of sight that we learn at the table. It's the same sight. And when we come here, we no longer see an ordinary table. This is just, you know, like a table and there's a cup and there's some bread on it. Just everyday sort of mundane items that you can pick up at the store. But instead, we see a holy place with holy things. Mundane, simple, ordinary things that God has placed his name on and then they've become different. In the same way that he does it in places and he does it in people, he does it here at the table. For in this space, at this time, here, the Lord has hallowed his name. The bread and the wine have become the body and blood of Christ. Why? so that we might become for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. He hallows his name here. Why? That he might hallow his name in us. Why? So that we might take it into the world and other people would see his name. That they too might become holy people. People in places in whom the Lord has hallowed his name. So come to the table. I encourage you to just take a moment right now before Sarah comes and leads us and begin to ask the Lord to give you this kind of sight. Lord, would you teach me to see places as places that you're making your name holy, people as people in whom you're making your name holy. And would you do that in my life as well?